know what that means? Everything. Anglo-thieves. Gettle's gone. Oh my god, you people have just failed me. Failed me utterly. Congratulations, Scotland. We have just gone full And welcome to four, episode 48. See, I was so excited that I had the number right that I was going to say it early. <laughs> totally stoked. <laughs> we're prepared and totally a classy join here at episode 48 of Anglo Fees. <laughs> we're very professional. We're so professional. We'll just leave all this shit in. Hi, I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee. Kaylee puts up with us for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm the person who's gonna leave all this shit in, so I'm I'm the one with the power. I'm very amused. Exactly. But you're gonna leave it in because it's hilarious and we're delightful. <laughs> um, but today we are going to talk about what we've been reading and what we're happy about. And some people tweeted things that they were super stoked about having read and were excited about. So um it's, it's another happy episode. Yay! I I was in Minnesota last weekend, so I'm still riding my... I got to chew on my nephew high. So it makes me happy. And they. I know that my sister and the baby listen. So, hey guys! Hey G-dubs, what's up? Aww. I'm the best aunt ever. <laughs> so, who wants to start? I can start. I'll go... Yeah, you go for it. <laughs> we, we can box for it, but you know how to because you're reading a boxing book. <laughs> yeah, but I'm also really lazy, so. <laughs> uh. Whereas uh, my book has the word erotic appear in it uh, in a kind of a surprising amount of times that I did not expect. I'm reading a Charlotte Bronte biography. <laughs> 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 it's called Charlotte Bronte, A Fiery Heart. Not an erotic fiery heart? The, the erotic is implied, as essentially in every sentence of this book. <laughs> Do you guys know how when uh, a nonfiction book comes out, very often they'll take an entire chapter of it, or at least part of one that's kind of a self-contained unit, and publish it in some magazine or an online publication to get as kind of essentially advertising? Mm-hmm. And that's what this book did, and essentially were, was very efficient because it published the bit... At, um, the bit of the biography where it talks after Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights and Agnes Grey were came out and the public was very curious by who these Bell siblings might be. So that bit where at first the sisters still hide who they are, even from their publisher, but then uh, reveal their, their real names and their nature <laughs> as women to the publisher. So that was the bit that got published. I'll find a link for people who are curious so they can check it out and see the, if they also get caught into buying the book. <laughs> so I did. I bought the whole book. I'm not finished with it yet. I'm somewhere between a third and two-thirds into it. So now I'm at the part where they actually did get published. But it's, it's a pretty expansive biography. It goes into even a little bit of their parents' life of how they met before, so it's, it's an entire life overview. And I guess even after 
because that bit didn't go so much into their personal relationship, the, the preview bit that I read. It was really all about the literature. So I guess I just expected the personal relationships bit to be more aloof or state or something, but it certainly didn't expect it all to be about, like, this is all the sexual passions that Charlotte Bronte had. <laughs> Let me show you them. <laughs> maybe I just didn't know anything about Charlotte Bronte. I mean, maybe that's just my bad. But that's why you're reading the book, is to learn more about Charlotte Bronte. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should mention the, the writer's name, because it's kind of bad to talk about it for so long. It's by Claire Harmon. I, I also uh, want a trivia that I learned from this book that I didn't realize. I didn't realize that uh, Elizabeth Gaskell wrote the first biography of Charlotte Bronte. Oh, really? Yeah. It's not quoted per se, but a lot of this book, the Claire Harmon book, will say things like, when interviewing Patrick Bronte, Charlotte's father, Elizabeth Gaskell said, you know, learned this, or they told Elizabeth this. So it refers to it quite a bit, but it, because it was commissioned by Charlotte Bronte's father, uh, as far as I can understand, during Charlotte's lifetime still. It was written off interviews of Charlotte, her family, her friends. Like, it was essentially like the TV documentary with like the talking head interviews, only in Victorian era of our book form. <laughs> mm-hmm. For those who don't know. Elizabeth Gaskell is the one who wrote North and South, which is made into a miniseries starring Richard Armitage, who we love. Yes. And you should read North and South. It's actually really, really good. Up until it gets to the end when it's like, oh, God, there's a deadline. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that, that's that's a little bit true. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a makeout scene. I mean, it's a little bit fade to black, but there's an actual makeout scene. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, so back to Charlotte Bronte. It's uh, it's not a hard read. Uh, sometimes I find the names of some of the like friends of the family do get jumbled, but they're not really essential to remember exactly how, like whether this was a friend of her mother or her father or whatever. To remember, you can just kind of let the name be the name and and read on. I do find Claire Harmon as a writer. There's a lot of opinion of her own point of view and opinion injected into this, as if it were objective fact. So she'll say, oh, and then Charlotte wrote this plaintive letter or the thing she said to that person was obviously motivated by this. And I would have to read the actual quote and see, like, do I agree that it was, you know, intemperately passionate or inappropriate or plaintive or anything that Clara Harmon ascribed to it? Because I find that she introduces her own opinion of what Charlotte Bronte's or the other people's motivation was very securely into the text as if it's established fact. So that's something to watch out for. And I mean, certainly this is her biography. She has that right. But I don't necessarily want to take it at face value. After all, it is just her conjecture based on her research. I'm, I'm sure the re- you know, she did do a ton of research and everything. So I'm, most of the time I'm willing to give it to her. But, you know, like she, she doesn't really know what Charlotte Bronte was thinking, even though she kind of writes like she does. <laughs> so for those who read Jane Eyre and kind of want to see, does it map? Yeah, it was very heavily intro influenced by Charlotte Bronte's life. It's kind of such a tragic family because if you read about the parts, like after the books books came out, Emily Bronte and Anne Bronte, the other two sisters, died very soon after and very close together and very close to the their older brother, Branwell Bronte. And that's on top of the fact that this family lost its two eldest daughters very in their childhood when they were either early teenagers or around like 10 years old when they were away at school so like 
their father lost like all of his children except Charlotte. Like that's it's it's kind of horrible to think about it. But yeah, so Charlotte Bronte's childhood is, is colored very heavily by you know her two sisters going away to school and dying there. <laughs> And then, so from then on, her experiences of going to the same school and then to some others, you see it very, you do see it very heavily in Jane Eyre. It's, it was called an autobiography, actually, by the influence of the publisher, because she submitted it just as Jane Eyre's story by a gentleman or something like that, and then, or a novel. And they said, no, let's publish it as Jane Eyre, an autobiography. And my understanding is, at the time, this wasn't seen like, a lie you told to the public like no no no. the public's gonna understand that this is probably fiction this is just something we say to make it more interesting Whereas <laughs> nowadays it just wouldn't be the publisher would have to make it a lot more explicit that no this is actually a work of fiction that we're pretending it's an autobiography thus confusing millions of school children across the globe i'm actually thinking of princess bride as i say these things <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did that too with Princess Bride. Like all of us thought there was an actual like S. Morgan Stern <laughs> Princess Bride writer. Interesting. This wasn't actually the first the original novel she planned to publish. So they all the three sisters, uh Charlotte, Emily, Anne, finish their novels for Emily it's Weather and Heights, which I'll, I'll admit personally I actually like Weather and Heights more than Jane Eyre. <clears throat> for Anne it's Agnes Grey. <laughs> which I haven't read. And for Charlotte, it's a novel called The Professor because Charlotte wrote it after coming back from Belgium where she fell in love with her school teacher who was married. Scandal. Yeah, and when she came back, she kept on writing to him and I guess he was kind of like, this is really inappropriate. And it was... And she kind of envisioned this story where like, oh, his shrewish wife won't allow our noble passions, you know, to... Be open to each other. Oh God, Charlotte, please, you're you're such a twenty-something girl in love. <laughs> so she wrote a kind of a wish fulfillment novel about a student and a teacher, where the teacher's unmarried but has to choose the plain and unpretty student over a beautiful schoolmistress, because the the in real life the wife owned the school where Charlotte went and then actually later taught, and the husband was one of the also school teachers there. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. awkward. This was the novel she uh, she shopped around and really believed in, but it was refused. And Jane Eyre was... Okay, the word plagiarism came into my head a lot as I read these. I don't think Charlotte Bronte is a plagiarist, like, not necessarily even by modern standards. She's kind of like a copyist. You know, she reads Agnes Grey, her sister Anne's book, which is about a governess, and then decides, well, what if I just make my character a governess? And this is not the first time she's done this. You know, even her, the previous novel, The Professor, the one about the schoolmaster, had, like, bits which she just lifted out of her brother's writing. Like, there's apparently a bit about owning a paper or a cotton mill or a paper mill, one of those, like, industrial factories and things that she just kind of lifted out of that. So it's kind of an amalgam of, yeah, her life experiences, like all of parts of Jane Eyre in a school kind of came out of her experiences in, in a boarding school and her sister's deaths. But also, oh, well, you know, that worked for my sister, so I'm going to use it here. That worked for my brother, so I'm going to use it here. So she actually wrote Jane Eyre after those novels, but it was the first to be published. Luckily for Jane Eyre, she found a publisher that really loved the book. It was apparently one of the things, you know, she's admitted the manuscript, 
And the the editor, the publisher slash editor, I guess it wasn't really a distinction back then, decided to take it home and was like, okay, I just finished it in a night. You know, I was had plans. I was supposed to go out. I sent out a note going like, I'm not going anywhere. I just finished this book. <laughs> so Jane Eyre came out and was, and they offered her actual money for it. Because at the time, a lot of publishing was kind of vanity publishing, which the three sisters did because apparently they did it with um, a collection of their poems. Uh, the vanity published it because they thought like once you do have it published though it still like gets your name out there so it wasn't really seen the way we see vanity publishing now where it's like well like i mean it's not real nobody bought it you just paid to have it bound but at the time it was normal just to have pay to have things bound but jane Eyre was actually caught a publisher's eye to the point where they said no we'll pay you hmm. and i think that's pretty notable about how they felt in the book Whereas Weathering Heights and Agnes Gray were languishing with a publisher who did want it to be vanity publishing and who actually like didn't really understand the books or appreciate them and only really published them because once Jane Eyre became popular and they were the sisters wrote under the same pseudonyms, I mean, under the same last name as pseudonym, that publisher thought very scummily like, oh, I can cash in on this. I can even imply that it's the same author. And then apparently, kind of unsurprisingly, Weathering Heights was judged a little too scandalous for <laughs> its day uh not so much on the sexual topics but i guess on the almost like religious grounds of being a little too going against the established like kind of christian mores Mm -hmm. so that's kind of as far as i got in the book like i'm still at that part where they're publishing interesting facts that i don't know how much i want to reveal because i kind of want to entice people into reading this but uh, well here's an interesting fact the bronte siblings they lived a very sheltered life where they didn't really have a lot of company their own age or other ages. So they had each other for company. They created this entire fantasy world and they would write books and both publications of fictionally existed within the world and like books about this world. But apparently they wrote them in the super tiny script. There's a photo you can see where the books they wrote are next to a coin and they're maybe just two times bigger than it. And they're little books that they manually created wrote, but they didn't write like gibberish or lines just to look like book is written. No, they'd write full on novels in there, both as children and as teenagers and into adulthood. And they had this fully developed fake country with its politics and characters that they developed. It's actually really impressive. So no wonder that their debut novels kind of created such a stir because in reality, they've been writing since childhood, like just tons. I don't know that. I don't. I honestly don't know if a person who I think if you add up all of their literally output could actually, you know, match up because it's just tons. It's really impressive, but it's also no wonder that they were mostly blind if they had to like write that tiny script to tie lines, training their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do want to share a quote. Hold on, let me find it. This is hilarious. This is after Jane Eyre's published and after a lot of fairly favorable reviews come into it. Charlotte decides she's going to reveal it to her father. They, they published secretly from the father, who, who was a, a reverend. He, he was a priest. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I guess priest is the wrong word for Anglicans. I'm sorry if that's not quite correct. You can have Anglican priests. It's okay. <laughs> clergy. I guess the correct the, the, the word I was really looking for, like he was a member of the clergy. So she gives him, apparently, this is how uh, Elizabeth Gaskill writes down Charlotte's own report of the scene of giving the book to her father. Papa, I've been writing a book. Have you, my dear? And he went on reading. But Papa, I want you to look at it. I can't be troubled to read a manuscript. But it is printed. Oh, I hope you have not been involving yourself in any such silly expense. I think I shall gain some money by it. May I read you some reviews? 
So she read them, and then she asked him if he would read the book. He said she might leave it and he would see it. And then he came in to tea with the family and announced the following. Children, Charlotte has been writing a book, and I think it is a better one than I expected. Oh, thanks, Dad. <laughs> Low expectations there. <laughs> oh, bless. Apparently, from what I've read, he did think Charlotte a better writer than her sisters, but for a long time, the family's hopes have really been in their brother Branwell. I guess kind of understandably in that, at the time, they needed him to have a career and income because they needed him to support his sisters. It was much more pragmatic and practical to expect that than the girls being able to support themselves, and it actually didn't work out because instead the girls had to go out into the world as governesses and teachers while Branwell became an alcoholic and an opium addict. I think partly because they kind of built him up so much that he couldn't handle the disappointment of not being this undiscovered genius that somebody finally discovers. He's basically a Byronic hero, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, he absolutely, including an affair with a married woman. No wonder most of the Bronte sisters' heroes were dicks. <laughs> <laughs> they were very disappointed in him for this. He, he, it was, he, he had an affair when he was working as a tutor with the wife of his employer, was discovered, came home in disgrace, kept on like languishing and trying to write her letters. Then the husband died, and he thought, well, good, great, and I'll get to marry a rich widow now, but she didn't want to have anything to do with him anymore. So <laughs> there he was going, oh, woe is me. Her cruel husband wouldn't, even in his will, wouldn't let her, wouldn't let her marry me. And I'm like, are you sure she wanted to marry you? <laughs> I wouldn't bet on it <laughs> but yeah yeah the thing about most Byronic heroes is that they tend to be at least successful in some area of their lives and I don't think Branwell Bronte ever was no no it's just me even sadder apparently they tried to set him up as an artist which was the one thing he was actually kind of bad at and he really did try to make it as a writer. And and after he came home and was uh, kicked out of that tutor job, his friends kept on trying. Uh, he worked in, in the railway for a while, but he was like, he didn't want to do it. So he kept on slacking off just so he could try to write instead. And afterwards, people tried to get in that job again. And the family really needed the money. I mean, there were like four un- not working children living at home, right? On their father's income. And, and he was essentially like, oh, I can't be bothered. So... <laughs> His sisters have to go out and support him in a, in a world that's where they're not really jobs for women to have like that. Uh, but no, they, he was just expecting that his family was just going to... And they were all so mad at him, which is, you know, quite understandable in my opinion. I'm kind of... I got really indignant on their behalf when you read the parts about Branwell. I know he dies young and it's all tragic everything and they loved him and he was their brother, but still, like... Ugh. There are actually some Branwell truthers who believe that he wrote at least one of his sister's books, which is just typical bullshit, right? <laughs> oh, a woman could never write Wuthering Heights, right? Well, I'm sorry, a man could never write Wuthering Heights. If I'm be. Agreed. <laughs> but actually, funnily enough, when when the books first came out, I think uh, and the reviews kept flowing in, like off Jane Eyre, one of them was, oh, this has to be a man. Of course. And this shit continues to this day. I mean, there are still people who believe that Truman Capote wrote Harper Lee's work. Mm-hmm. Truman Capote wishes he could have written Harper Lee's work. He didn't I... have it within himself to be not bitchy. Here's the thing. Branwell was trying to get published constantly. And he did kind of like, he sent in, you know, poems to magazines and all that. If he wrote this novel, 
I can imagine no set of circumstances under which it would be published under Charlotte's name or anything. I also can't imagine circumstances under which Charlotte would take credit. Like, there's no evidence. We do have their letters and such and diaries and things. Like, there's just nothing to point out. Like, yeah, they wrote, they read each other's work and wrote a lot. And maybe they'd lift, like I said, the kind of, not passages, but plot threads. And readapt them from their fic- from the writing that they wrote just for their own little fictional world, right? Like that's that's where they would lift it out into their actual books. But there's no proof that they ever directly like submitted works as one another. Maybe it comes out of that, you know, I mentioned it earlier, like the publisher who tried to pass off Weather and Heights and Agnes Gray is Charlotte's work. That was all the publisher. There's no mm-hmm. evidence that it was ever Emily and Anne. They wanted to get known to be known for their own writing. The three sisters, actually, these first three initial books, and by first three I mean not Jane Eyre, but that the professor book, were written kind of in secret from each other, and then they realized that they've done that. Like, okay, well, let's let's get together and try to get it published. They actually tried to get it published all three in one volume. I think I guess it just was more practical at the time, just the way publishing worked. But it was like an incestuous little world of writers at the time. Like after they did get published, they they were reviewed and got to correspond with like with Thackeray, and it's not just Elizabeth Gaskell. Like, there was a lot of writers who read it and had opinions about it, and that's kind of interesting to read. Like, what is what did this other writer that I've read think about that book? <laughs> yeah, so I'm really happy I picked it up. It's been a long time since I read a nonfiction, and I really do enjoy biographies. For example, Alison Weir's Tudor stuff, that's the kind of thing. But I haven't read one in a while, so when I... Yeah, when I saw the excerpt from this one, I was like, okay, I've been wanting to read something nonfiction and biographical, and I think this is going to be a a good one. It's pricey. The nonfictions don't really get the kind of discount that a lot of the genre fiction gets. But if you have money to spend on a a slightly pricier book, then, yeah, I'd recommend it. Cool. Have you read White Sargasso Sea? I haven't. Like I said, Jane Eyre isn't... Like my favorite, so I wasn't too interested in the. I know it's about Bertha. Yeah, it's actually pretty short. It's only like under about two hundred pages long. Oh. So it is definitely a quick read if you're interested. It's a really fascinating one to pick up once you have actually read Jane Eyre. I haven't read Jane Eyre since I was seventeen. I think <laughs> I remember because I bought it when the Scholastic team came around the school with the book thing. And you could buy books. I haven't read it. I ha- I've had to read it for a uh, university course. So that's the last time I read it when I was in my early 20s. But I mean, there was that movie with Mia Wasikowska. I do like that movie. I-, I really, I really like that movie. I am always disappointed that none of the adaptations of Jane Eyre do the bit <sighs> where there's the the fortune telling bit and Mr. Rochester's in drag. <laughs> like, why did none of them do that bit? We really should get like Michael Fassbender in a dress. <laughs> or Toby Stevens in a dress and the BBC one, which I really like. Yeah, I do wonder, because I remember when the movie came out, and a lot of like our circle of online friends were discussing Rochester as a hero, and there was that bit where, like, if you read it, Rochester doesn't treat women well. I mean, he treats Bertha well in that she's not, for example, in Bedlam, where it would be horrible. Like, physically, she's probably a lot safer in that attic than she would be in an institution of the time. So financially, he seems to take care of his obligations. But the way he speaks, for example, of Adele's mother, right, and to Adele, and of Adele herself. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah, so, uh, thank you yes, for that. Oh, I'm sorry. I had a thing in my throat. Yeah, I think you're sorry. Do you want some, you want some anti-bastard remover for that? <laughs> 
<laughs> so, and there's a bit where I think even in the book, Jane kind of says, look, if when things like finish, when you're done dallying with me, are you going to talk about me this way to your next conquest? He's like, no. She's like, nah, you, you would. And I think you would have possibly before he was humbled in that fire. But I wonder if that was kind of like her bitterness at the way she felt she was treated by the man she was in love with, that, that schoolmaster in Belgium. That, you know, he didn't answer her letters. And what he did, he essentially wrote to her because she was writing to him. And he wrote to her and said, like, you may write me two letters a year with updates as to you and your family's health. And she was like, I will wait to the day and then I will pour out all of my frustrations and like, begging for the crumbs of your attention. Like, oh, Charlotte, Charlotte, please. Oh, bless. I think a lot of people now, when they think of Mr. Rochester or Heathcliff or whatever, think of the Hark of Vagrant cartoon of the Bronte sisters man-watching. <laughs> yes, just yes, I do. Charlotte and Emily is just brooding over every dickish grunter who walks past and Anne saying, why? That guy's an asshole. And says, this is why no one buys your books, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> Team, don't fuck that guy. Yeah. <laughs> I will say, if you haven't seen the 2006 miniseries of Jane Eyre, which is Toby Stevens and Ruth Wilson, this was before she does Luther. It's very good and has a vaguely kind of hallucinogenic element to it. It's beautifully made, but there are, once again, there is no drag scene. So I think maybe I've seen a little bit of it. I remember being to check that. I guess I just, I guess I like cinematic adaptations or like screen adaptations of Jane Grey better than the book. I don't know. <laughs> maybe I just don't like Charlotte's writing style. Maybe the fault is mine. <laughs> I, shorter. I will admit that I have not finished Jane Eyre. I've started it a couple of times. I haven't finished the movie either. I've started the, uh, a couple of times. one? Yeah. What I do is I skip the beginning because I find the bits like until she gets out of school the most boring. Smart move. So skip the beginning and just go to her like getting meeting Rochester and then go through that. There was an adaptation in the mid 90s with Anna Paquin, wasn't there? I think there was. There's been so many. I know there was one with, um, I believe Samantha Morton did one in the 90s. Um, the same one. Yeah, well, IMDb to the rescue. It probably was, if it was in the 90s. I keep forgetting that Anna Paquin was, you know, is still pretty young. Yeah, I mean, she won her Oscar 92, 93? 93 or 94, I think, for the piano, yeah. yeah. She's also from the same part of New Zealand that my, my other podcast co-host Catherine is from. IMDb says she played young Jane Eyre. Yeah. In a 96 one where, who played, where Charlotte Gainsborough played Jane Eyre. Okay. As, like an adult, so uh, Anna Packard played baby Jane Eyre in that one. William Hurt is Rochester? Mm. Uh, I mean, he's apparently a dick, so, so that matches. Orson Welles as a Rochester what? feels like the kind of appropriate dick level for a, for a Rochester. Mm-hmm. For me, if you want a really good version of the, the Jane Eyre story, or like a version of the Jane Eyre story, just read Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> I love Rebecca. Rebecca's amazing. I will say my Bronte reading is pretty... I'm glad I read them when I was a teenager. I feel like I wouldn't have the patience to read them now. But, like, 17-year-old me could put up with Wuthering Heights. 26-year-old me would just tell that book to fuck off. (laughs) What? You see, I love Wuthering Heights. I love that Heathcliff is the guy who, when Isabella's like, oh, you're you're just a misunderstood, and and I'll heal you. And then they get married, she's like, why are you such a dick? And he's like, well, I told you I was. I'll see where you're surprised. 
I loved that bit. I love it. I love that Kathy Jr. is a bitch to everyone. It's my favorite. Kathy Jr. being a bitch to people is my favorite thing about Weatherman Heights. I could spend an entire podcast just quoting bits of Kathy Jr. being a bitch. I don't know. I love it. Maybe I just love pettiness in literature. People are horrible. Everybody's horrible in that book. It's great. It's fantastic. (laughs) Russian nihilism. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember how Kathy Jr. treats her cousin when she first meet him? Even though they end up together in the end and she's all like in tears because no way this this uncouth beast could be like related to her. It's great. And Nellie is all like, she's an angel. Sorry, Once sorry. again, Park of Agrid did an awesome Wuthering Heights. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, in terms of Jane Eyre, I have always been really sad that Angela Carter, who's one of my favourite writers, um, was writing a sequel to Jane Eyre at the time for death, and it was going to be about Adele and her Ooh. mother. Uh, and basically, I think the only thing that survived it was like a brief kind of few notes on the subject, but I would have loved <laughs> to have read that, because if you've ever read Angela Carter, her work is beautiful and deeply fucked up. God, poor Adele. Like At the end of that book, it's like, but with with proper instruction and schooling, Adele became an excellent little helper. And I'm, oh, Jesus Christ, poor Adele. Is she going to live the rest of her life as your servant? Like, no, no, better for freedom for Adele 2016. <laughs> free Adele. Free Huma. Free everybody. See, there's a, on the other side. There's yeah, a bit <laughs> at the end of Jane Eyre where. I was always mad at Jane Eyre as a 20-year-old because she has that passage in the middle of the book. She's like, oh, were I a man, I would be free to travel and everything. And then she gets that money and she runs back to Rochester. And I was like, you're rich now, go travel. But now she, she wants to like go back to Rochester. And then, But there's a bit in the kind of the epilogue where she goes, no, we did go to the continent traveling for like honeymoon or whatever. And I met those peasants and they seem to be like horrible and rude and unwashed and whatever other mean things she said about them. And God, it's so xenophobic, but reading her experiences living in Brussels, like it kind of makes sense where Charlotte would have that opinion. She really didn't take to be, all the siblings seem kind of, I want to say agoraphobic, apologies, but they really were like so sheltered in that world. Going out of the parsonage was painful to them. Being in company and all of that, even though they partly wanted it, but when they encountered it, it seemed to be, that they kind of only wanted it in theory. In reality, they did want to just uh, curl up in a little house and never leave it. So being in Brussels among strangers in a kind of strange land, and there was a difference of religion, which was a big part of her life. So I still think it's kind of a xenophobic passage, but at least now I understand where it comes from. It's always an interesting experience reading some of these sort of the quote-unquote classics and then realizing, wow, this really was written by a white person. Because I had that experience when I was older and came back to reading Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. Which is a book I still really love. I have a lot of attachment to it. Peter Pan's a big deal around here because GM Barry is from about 15 miles to the left of me. There's like Peter Pan statues all over the place and stuff. So reading that and then going back, it's like, oh, wow, the bit where you just straight up said Piccaninnies and caught red face and oh wow I'm going to put this book down now and just like go outside and play when you read Dracula and realise just how much of that book is basically about xenophobia and all of these you know dark eastern European possibly vaguely Jewish men coming over here and taking all our women it's like oh okay and then you watch every Dracula adaptation after that it's like yeah this is kind of racist (laughs) 
so this was my big spiel, and I'm going to wrap up with a couple of mentions. So there's a series of books that I haven't read that I've uh, had my eye on. I've been decided, like, they sound kind of fun and, like, they'd be in my vein. So this is kind of a call to our listeners. If anybody has read them, uh, let me know if you think they're worth picking up. This is the Amelia Peabody series. Apparently started in the 70s, but it goes on for quite a few books. And it sounds right up my alley as a person who kind of loves Agatha Christie-esque. Agatha Christie herself and anything similar to her. So, yeah, I've been thinking of picking those up. Any, anybody has read them, let me know. It sounds like they're they're worth giving a try. I mean, murders and Egyptology and possibly some smooching. That works. <laughs> Anna and Fia of The Book Smugglers, the mm-hmm. web- website, I believe they are really big fans of the series, so you could check out their reviews mm. to see if it's up your alley. But I, I believe it is kind of described as like Victorian-era Lady Indiana Jones in Egypt, but with less of the Hatred of Snakes and more smooching. <laughs> Can I have both the Hatred of Snakes and the smooching? I'm not against that. I would like both of those things. I'm just saying. <laughs> By snakes, I mean snakes, not, you know, like dick. <laughs> <laughs> no euphemism. The cigar is just a cigar. There's no euphemisms here. I really just don't like snakes. <laughs> oh, I love snakes. And uh, the other one that I'll mention is uh, related to romance in that I finally read a Gina Showalter, you know, after all these years, because I love the paranormal subgenre. And, like, occasionally I just get a hankering for all the, the crazy, the craziest part, the kind of inspired by Anita Blake, <laughs> Laurel K. Hamilton parts of paranormal. I've read a lot of Cressley Cole, but, like, over the past couple of weeks was the first time I pe- picked up a Gina Showalter. But I've read, like, a short one of her short stories in an anthology. So if anybody wants to recommend which one of the longest series they think or books I should pick up, get, feel free to uh, leave a comment. I haven't read any of her work. I haven't been a paranormal romance reader for a while. I did read a Nalini Singh book a while back, which I loved the world building of, but I just thought that the hero was kind of your prototypical alpha douchebag, mm. which is not my preference at all. If it is your preference, I think those books would probably be perfect for you. But I wish you could have just had a world that was just entirely her describing that world and those hierarchies just without mm-hmm. that dick in it. <laughs> but I do remember I, I read Anita Blake up to book nine and then someone told me stop. <laughs> like, you won't regret it. Just just leave it there and walk away. <laughs> I stopped all of my own after City and Butterfly, which is I think is either eight or nine. Was Narcissus and Chains the last one you read? That was the one I was told not to read. I did as I was told, don't go beyond there. I think that was the, the the first one I didn't pick up, and then I just you know let let's break up here. It's been good, it's been good for both of us, <laughs> but I think we're both ready to move on. It's still going. The series is still going. I think we might have mentioned it maybe when we had Sean McGuire on, but like poor Laurel K. Hamilton in that the genre is flourishing, but she's been kind of left behind. Yeah, I think there's a number well. of reasons for that. But yep. she really was the the. The pro, you know, kind of ahead of the curve on that one. Yeah, but look at someone like Charlene Harris, who I, I think the Suki Stackhouse series went on way too long, although that was probably more because the TV series was big and she was just told, you know, here's money, keep going. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, she's really diversified in the kind of stuff that she writes, and I don't know if Laurel K. Hamilton has. I, I Like I said, I don't know, I haven't read her in a while. My favourite thing that came out of her later books was there was a Goodreads review that described Anita Blake as having the MacGyver of vaginas. <laughs> <laughs> Which is my favorite Goodreads review ever. <laughs> um, so yeah, I keep hearing about the later books and what happens in them, and just sort of like chuckling, but then like putting my hand in my face. 
I have read the first book of Laura K. Hamilton's other series, the fairy one. Uh, I didn't read anything beyond the first one. Unless her letting her total freak flag fly, which, go for it. But there were just things going on, like, I think there was a bit with tentacles, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to skim. And then there was yeah. a lot of guys with really, really long hair, and as someone who has really long hair, I was like, you know, you can get Kirby grips and scrunchies and stuff for that. <laughs> I I've, I didn't skim the part with the tentacles. I can fill you in all <laughs> on that one. <laughs> You know, if those books came out now and were, like, self-indie-published on Amazon or something, I bet they would find a real cult-devoted audience. <laughs> There's a total genre love for that. Yeah, probably. Okay, so the next Anita Blake book comes out next month. It is 720 pages long. Oh, my God. How much? How no! Much Look, there's only so many things you can describe sex as. Surely she's just copy-pasting the sex scenes from earlier books at this point and figuring nobody will notice anyway. Everybody's skimming it. Oh Surely. my god. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. Jeez, like, even A Little Life wasn't that long. I also love that they're still using that one Charlene Harris quote that's been on the front cover since, like, book one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you go you, Laurel K. and I won't read it, but I can't wait to read the reviews. <laughs> Alright, I'm ready to hand off the reins. Can I go next, then? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so there aren't many benefits to unemployment, but one of them is that I have a lot more time to read. So I have completed my Goodreads, 200, uh, my Goodreads challenge of 52 books, one book a week for the year. I've already finished it. I mean, some of those books are comic books, but it still totally counts. Shut up. So the last book I read, I actually read it on Friday night. And I completely devoured it in one sitting which is rare for me now. It's Trumpet by Jackie Kay. If you don't know who Jackie Kay is, she's a Scottish-Nigerian writer, a queer woman. She now lives in England, I believe. She's the Macker, which is basically the Scottish Poet Laureate. She's best known as a poet. She, this is her, was her debut novel. And it's inspired by the story of Billy Tipton, who was a jazz musician in the, the 30s to the 60s, had this long, full illustrious life and many many wives and when he died they discovered that he was transgender he was assigned female at birth so the story of trumpet is essentially a story but it's about a, a young uh, east indian scottish man called joss moody who uh, becomes a world-class legendary jazz trumpeter and then after he dies they everyone find it was leaked to the press essentially that he was assigned female at birth. The terms I've used, they don't use these terms in the book. The book is from 1995, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, so the term transgender is never used. They use a lot of misgendering in the book because obviously that was how people would have talked about someone like this. So if that, if you're sensitive to that kind of thing, beware. I think the book does it really very gently for. So the book starts, it, it jumps through time, primarily following Joss's wife, Millie, and his son, Coleman, adopted son, as hear the story of how they got together how they they got married how his career became huge how they had this child and how the world kind of reacts to finding out this news and there's this tabloid journalist who kind of convinces his son who's called coleman to write a really trashy tell-all memoir about this and you know what it's like to find out that your dad is not who he says he is so it was really fascinating story about identity and performativity and what it's like to live that kind of life and the experience of your 
identity along lines of gender and sexuality and race and nationality. The nationality stuff was really fascinating. Joss Moody considers himself very proudly Scottish and enjoys coming to Scotland and buying all the food, which is something only people who don't live in Scotland anymore do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really rare to find stories about the the immigrant experience in Scotland from point of view of people who aren't white. Scotland's immigrant population is primarily these days more Eastern European based, a lot of Romanian, a lot of Polish people. And there's a large Scottish Pakistani community here, a Scottish Indian community. But you don't see a lot of stories about the black Scottish experience. Mm-hmm. And this is obviously something very personal for Jackie Kate in that aspect. But I was, I was really, really moved by it, actually. Considering she's more known as a poet, I think she's actually a very gifted writer of prose. It reads like poetry at times, but not in a pretentious way. Because I, I like poetry, but I, I, I'm more of a you know poetry moderation person. I'll, I'll take a book over poetry any day. Mm-hmm. But I was really the, the, the nationality stuff was really fascinating. Joss and his wife consider themselves very proudly Scottish, even when they're living in England. But his son doesn't have that kind of identity to to grab onto. He never feels Scottish or English. He never really feels proudly black or aware of his background because he was adopted, and they have. You know, he, he doesn't really know how to process that, especially with the news later on about his dad's life. And then there's this really awful, trashy tabloid journalist who is constantly misgendering him and really is just interested in making some money out of this life and digging up everything she can and turning it into the kind of scandal, even as other people are telling her, dude, just let it go. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, I would recommend it. It's about 300 pages long. I devoured it in one sitting, which is rare for me because I just... I, I pick up things and kind of leave them and come back to them. I'll read a couple of things at once. And this, it was just nice to sit down and enjoy this for what it was. I've only read some of her poetry, but I, I liked what I read. So if you're interested in those kind of themes I discussed earlier, but in poetry form, check out Jackie Kay's work. She's kind of, she's becoming more beloved here. I think she was sort of known only to the academic and literary types in Scotland. But now because she is the macker, people know who she is a little more. Mm-hmm. So, and she's just fascinating. She's also the ex-girlfriend of Carol Ann Duffy, who's the English poet laureate. So, like, that's a story I want to know more about because I. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just—it's really rare to read a story, to read trans stories. This is written by a cisgender author, a queer one, but a cisgender one. Your mileage may vary in that, but it's really rare to read those stories. It's really rare to read ones about trans people of color. It's really rare to read them about the, the experience of people of color in Scotland written by people of colour. So considering how primarily very white, very male Scottish literature is, so you've either got, you can basically have your your brave heart style story or you can have your kind of train spotting story. You've got urban grit or flag-waving historical tartanry. And it's just really refreshing to read something that is neither of those things. It is a historical, it's it's early 20th century, so it's not, you know, there's no rolling hills, I'm afraid, for all of you who like that kind of thing. <laughs> you you smoothed out. You mean that when I come visit you, there aren't any going to be any rolling hills to see? Oh, no, there are fuck tons of hills. Don't worry. Oh, thank God. I'm <laughs> surrounded by them at this time. I live <laughs> You're not short of pretty scenery. What about sexy Scotsman and kilts? Am I going to... Yeah. To steal the joke from Frankie Boyle, we see someone in this kilt around here. That's not a Scotsman. That's just an English guy going to a wedding. <laughs> okay. We can find you some Scottish guys. It's okay. We'll- Wait, hold up, hold up, hold up. We saw pictures of your dad in a kilt, though. 
But he was going to a wedding. Going to a wedding? <laughs> Unless you want to come up here for my sister's wedding next year, that'll be the only time you'll see my dad in the kilt. That's probably for the best. Um, <laughs> ouch. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that just took a really weird turn. <laughs> that was a bit strange. So yeah, um, if you are interested in this kind of thing, if you'd like to read something Scottish that doesn't have a single Highlander in sight, I would highly recommend this. It's just such a, even for someone who reads a lot of Scottish literature, my my you know my my point of view still tends to sort of roll my eyes between either Brigadoon or Train Spotting. So this was just incredibly refreshing and really gripping and inc- emotionally just brutal at times. And it's the kind of thing that just we don't really get a lot of in Scottish literature. So when it comes along, you're just kind of hallelujah, even though I'm about twenty years too late to this one. But you know, better late than never. So yep. Trumpet by Jackie Kay, it's. I believe it's available on Amazon if you're American or wherever, wherever fine books are sold, go dig it out. And we will have links to all of these books in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Because we want you to read things. <laughs> Reading is fun. Reading is fun. Even when you're in a horrible, horrible slump. <laughs> where very few things are actually keeping your interest. Oh, that's the worst. It's the worst. But are you done? Is it my turn now? Yeah, I'm done. Just one to what about ladies sure. punching each other? Oh, we'll like circle back. We'll circle back. We'll back. Okay. okay. We'll circle back. Because I don't believe that we've only each read one thing that we want to talk about. <laughs> knowing us as I do. Okay, so I was listening. I listened to a lot, like a lot of podcasts at work. Because my job is very boring and I don't have to talk to people, which is nice. And on Fresh Air, about a month ago, there was a pair of authors who wrote a book about the culinary history of the Great Depression in the U.S. And I like food history and culinary history, as you may have heard a little bit. So this sounded fascinating, even when they gave a recipe that involved boiling the spaghetti for 25 minutes. Ooh. Yeah. Was there anything left? No. (laughs) No. But I immediately pre-ordered their book, because I am not dumb. And then I told my mom about it. She's like, I need to borrow it. Because my mom also likes food history. The book is called A Square Meal, A Culinary History of the Great Depression by Jane Ziegelman and Andrew Coe. And they are a married couple. And he is a culinary historian and she is an author. So you put those two things together, you get a book. And it covers... It starts off with kind of how the U.S. worked together to get food to refugees in Europe during and after World War One, and getting food to soldiers and kind of figuring out, okay, we need to ship food overseas, so how can we use modern technology to make the food still be edible, if not tasty? And then the Great Depression happens, and suddenly we have this massive unemployment, and prices are tumbling, and nobody has any money. And it goes through, like, how the farmers survived... And how people who depended on the farmers survived. Not great, by the way. So, like, farmers could go back to subsistence farming and growing their own food. 
But when food prices dropped, like, it would cost a dollar and a half to slaughter a hog, but you could only sell the, the hog for a dollar, then it doesn't make any sense to try to sell that on the market. So we had this situation where there was no food available to buy, but there was this massive surplus available of, of food to harvest, and a lot of food ended up getting destroyed even while people were starving to death. Oh, jeez. So that's frustrating. Like, there's a lot of things to make you angry in this book. As the government was trying to figure out how to form welfare and social programs to get people fed, but make sure it was only the people who were worthy of getting help and, like, you couldn't have any savings and God help you if you actually got a job because then you wouldn't get your 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 food delivery and how breadlines worked and how they didn't work and they sort of leave it up to you to draw the line between all of that bullshit and the bullshit today of how welfare and food stamps and EBT and all of those things work. Again, not great. But it's fascinating, and you also have this whole thing where some of the leading food scientists at the time were like, well, food should just be calories and nutrients, and don't worry about how it tastes. That's not important. People worry too much about taste. And that's why a lot of, like, white American cuisine is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) It's because... That's what our grandparents kind of grew up eating during the Depression. And then that's what our parents learned how to cook. And while at the same time, the immigrants were like, we have spices. We're able to cook perfectly tasty things out of the ass of an ox. So I don't really see your problem, even though we can't really buy the ass of an ox right now. But it's fascinating. And period of food history that I think a lot of people just see pictures of bread lines and go, oh, okay. Oh, you can buy an apple for a penny. That's that's pretty good, right? It's not. It's not good for anybody. So, yeah, I highly recommend if you're interested in how food got from A to B or A to C and what that B was in the 1930s. And when <laughs> Franklin Rose- and Eleanor Roosevelt walked into the White House... She was like, okay, we're going to be an austerity White House and we're going to eat like the common people. And FDR was like, God, really? Do we, can, I, can I have a steak? And she's like, no, chip to beef for everybody. Similar thing happened, uh, well, not quite, in, uh, during World War II with Winston Churchill. Everyone in Britain had their food rationed. Certain things like meat and eggs and cheese and stuff were limited. Every day for dinner, Winston Churchill was having a bottle of champagne and a, fr- and a whole roast chicken to himself. God. Winston. I mean, like, I can't begrudge him the champagne. Because he probably would have ceased to exist without a regular influx. A bottle of day? Sure! A regular influx of massive quantities of alcohol. But a whole chicken, dude? Come on. Maybe the chicken soaked up the champagne. Maybe. Because this is the only way I can assume that we did anything during World War II if he was just constantly tanked. <laughs> it seemed to work out okay for him, though, so... Yeah, if you ignore all of his terrible economic policies, everything was fine. <laughs> he used to be, actually, before um, he became Prime Minister, he used to be an MP in Dundee, believe it or not. 
And he yeah. was just heated up here because he was never here. He just wanted a seat in Parliament and then he could stay in London and eat lots of chicken. You don't have any chicken in Dundee? Apparently yeah, not. Yeah, you would have to eat near, like, common people, you know, Scots. So. Oh, God. God, not that. They're all wearing kilts. <laughs> not going to wedding. <laughs> <laughs> so that is my current recommendation. Um... Harper Collins has been sending me a whole bunch of books about World War One because they heard that I was into that kind of thing. So they sent me a book called The Shattered Tree by Charles Todd, which is actually a mother and son writing team. And it's a mystery. It's in a series called The Best Crawford Mysteries. And she is a volunteer aid detachment nurse on the French front in World War One, who occasionally gets embroiled in mysteries, as one does, because murder stops for no man or war, I guess. And that was really interesting. I'm interested in checking out the other books in this series. And The Secrets of Nanreath Hall is a, a split-time book, Set in World War One and World War Two, and the World War Two character is the daughter of the World War One character, and the whole oh my god, there's a whole mystery in the family, and we need to figure out what's up with what. And the World War Two character is also a volunteer aid detachment nurse who is assigned to one of the convalescent homes where her mother happened to grow up, and she's never been because she's a bastard. It's a whole big thing. That was a lot of fun. I like that one. It's kind of like if Franny Fisher started her mystery-solving career back on the battlefields, instead of waiting to come back to Australia. To Australia with her fantastic hats. Why is HarperCollins not sending me books? Why are you special? Because I'm a reviewer. That's fair enough. <laughs> I'm special because I'm special. <laughs> oh, I'm a terrible person. Why do you guys even like me? Oh, well, that's a story. <laughs> I was going to say, because you send us really cute pictures of your nephew. <laughs> Can I hear about lady punching now? Yes, lady punching. Okay. So sometimes you see a book on your shelf and you must buy it, even though you have lots and lots of books on your shelf and your mum has started giving you those really passive-aggressive looks when you put more books on the shelves. But it simply must be done. So that book for me was The Fair Fight by Anna Freeman. Two words, lady punching. Actually, the term is pugilists, which was basically female boxing in the late 18th, early 19th century. So it's basically being described as Sarah Waters meets Fight Club, but it's nowhere near as gross and icky as Fight Club. So, Like, if a guy was to tell me he liked The Fair Fight, I wouldn't be creeped out by him when he tells me his favorite thing is Fight Club. You step away, you know? Yep. So basically, Fair Fight follows three intertwining storylines centered around the world of bare-knuckle underground boxing, particularly featuring women. So there is Ruth, who was born in a brothel and is basically the one not pretty enough to be a sex worker, but she is really good at punching things, so they make her a boxer. (laughs) And her life ends up taking a, a, a... bad turn when she loses in a fight against a man about twice her size and when her husband jumps in to defend her her kind of like pseudo promoter jumps in and decides that he's going to make her husband the boxer instead 
Oh, fuck that. Yeah. All this uh, boxing promoter is married to a woman called Charlotte, who was basically pawned off to him because she is covered in smallpox scars and is considered unsuitable for the rest of society, and also because her brother is a dick. Her brother is basically the Branwell Bronte of the series, but with with more queerness. He's actually basically got his boyfriend living with them, but under sort of vaguely codependent blackmailish circumstances. It's basically his boy boyfriend George is told, Hey, you know what? You should totally stay with me and I will pay you to be my valley and if you ever leave me I will destroy your life, okay? Oh that's charming. Very charming. I mean George is a very nice guy, but you know, he deserves a little bit better than that. <laughs> and we hear about his story as he starts sort of getting involved in this boxing world as well and trying to find out if he can make a little bit of money out of it to get away from the, the creepy boyfriend who he loves but also wants to constantly punch in the face. So if you've ever read any work by Sarah Waters, she wrote Tipping Velvet, which is one of my favourite books. She tends to write the queer narrat- the queer woman narrative of Victoriana, which is often basically ignored. It's not really something we have a long history of. We generally don't have a great history of working class Victorian women in literature either. Well, this is actually pre-Victorian. This is, um, I believe it's the Regency era, but it doesn't really read like a Regency story. Mm-hmm. It's set in Bristol. This is very much the community of the the working class, the poverty-stricken, the brothels, and so on. No boxing is this kind of one mode of incredibly thrilling entertainment they have that is rooted in the working classes but is still been, kind of being co-opted by the upper classes as a way to make money because it's basically gentrification the early days it's really beautifully written if you re- like those kind of stories with that, that that sort of detail it reads like a thriller in many ways even though it is not structured like one which I find really interesting the three different narratives are all very different they're distinct, they don't blend into each other too distinct too much, which I liked. Often, if you've got an author who's not that great at writing different points of view, they just sound the same. This one doesn't. It was fascinating to see the story of women who are just trapped under circumstances by men, as they always are, <laughs> and the ways that they kind of co-opt male power to get out of that, or at least try and carve a life for themselves out of that. Even for Ruth, it basically means getting her face pounded in constantly. Mm-hmm. And then when she stops being profitable, they do the typical thing and just try and get a man to do it. And how that dynamic changes her marriage of this guy, who was basically kind of pawned off to her as a child. He offered to rescue her, and they were like, okay, well, you can marry her, but you've got to work for us, and you know, you're basically got to pay off a debt. Even we genuinely loves her, but it's like, yeah, I probably wouldn't have done that if I'd known that was going to happen. And how that changes the dynamic of their marriage. She goes from being, you know, the breadwinner, the, the sort of typically masculine one, for lack of a better word, because she is the one doing all of the fighting. And then he takes that over and everything kind of reverts to status quo. And she kind of has to be a housewife, but has no idea how to do that. Because once again, she just wants to punch things. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, a preferable life to housework, in my opinion. Dishes <laughs> are punching, you know. I'm going to paste these in the show notes too, but I'm going to link you guys the Amazon page where if you go, look at the difference between the covers of the Kindle edition and the hardcover. Yes. It was a similar thing for us as well. The, the cover I have 
which was for the British paperback edition. It's a silhouette of a woman with her fists raised in a fighting position. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the original cover that came out for hardback, and I think you can get versions of paperback here as well, is a more sort of traditional sort of cartoonish style of these two women in the ring punching each other. Like an old Victorian newspaper. Oh, yeah, we have that for the Audible cover. Yeah, that's the Audible cover. But if you click on the link I sent you and look at the hardcover, it's a lot, it looks a lot more like a cover for, like, the erotic novel than the fighting novel. It's like a woman's yep. chest with yeah, all the, the clothes sliding off. And it's, it's, wow. it's an interesting, like, how all the different cover designers, their take on the novel. Like, one of them went for that, yeah, like, let's put the Victorian kind of newspaper illustration of women punching. The one, the really kind of artsy shadow cutout of the woman with the fist rates, and the one where it's like, look, sexy lady. <laughs> yeah, I think the one that you linked to, which is the one that I have, I think that one is designed more specifically to look like the British covers of Sarah Waters novels. Okay. Which are more kind of um, abstract in style. The newer editions of ones like Fingersmith, the one that I have, is... Uh, really just the sort of text of the title and her name and then there's sort of like a an illustration of a hand and a key in a very sort of style Victorian mystery so which is a common publisher practice you know, hey, let's make this book look like another book because people will then buy it remember when Twilight became big and every young adult novel had like the yeah. black and red the hands the hands or something in a shadow or they even when they even did it to the Anne Rice books this is kind of tendentially related have you read The Crimson Petal in the White? I have. Um, and that's not Therawetter, sorry. That that one's uh, Michelle Farber. Uh, the reason I say tendentially related is because if you go to the fair fight, it'll say, you know, The Crimson Petal in the White meets Fight Club. Uh, I think I, I first heard about The Crimson Petal in the White is when the miniseries came out and I saw ads on TV for that. But And then I, I you know looked it up on Wikipedia. And the plot of that one is the one that sounds to me like, well, what if Jane Eyre was... A little less wish fulfillment and a little more like the way things actually are. Is am I correct in that? Because it's got like the wife with possible mental instability and the other woman. Or am I completely off? No, you're not wrong. I didn't like it. I read it when I was in this well, what I want to read is romance, but you know, real intellectual people don't read romance. <laughs> This was before I found smart bitches and, like, <laughs> came back. <laughs> it's still there, sitting on my shelf, taking up a lot of space. Yeah, the wife the wife had a brain tumor. Oh. It was what her problem was. And then the hooker was brought in to be the governess... Her name is Sugar, right? Yeah. Yes. And the reason oh, I remember her name is Sugar is because this is brought up in an episode of Gilmore Girls. Because Emily was reading it and was drunkenly trying to explain the plot to Lorelai. And Kelly Bishop is a gift and we do not deserve her. Anyway. Um, her name is Sugar. She, the, the dude, I'm not going to call him the hero because nobody in this book is a hero. Like, brings her into the house... Because he wants to keep fucking her, and she's employed as the governess for the daughter or something, and things get weird. I mean, that's how a lot of these books go, right? (laughs) Yeah. Blah, blah, blah happens, and then things get weird. 
haven't read. The, I've seen the mini series they did, which was Ramola Garai, uh, Chris O'Dowd. Amanda Hale is the wife. I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page. Yeah, Gillian Anderson's oh, in it too. Good yep. that. And it's that. it was interesting. My problem with it is, and I've only read a couple. Of, I've read no, I've read uh, Michelle Faber's other book, Under the Skin, which has been the Scarlett Johansson movie, mm-hmm. and. I, I think he's kind of like Stephen King in that he has wonderful ideas and has absolutely no idea how to end them. Yeah. The, the Crimson Petal on the White was really well received in terms of, oh, how wonderfully metatextual it is. And it's really an examination of that particular kind of Victorian novel as well as being one, which I find, you know, very interesting. Same thing for Under the Skin, which is a fascinating idea. And then at the end, he kind of just runs out of steam and is just like, uh, and then this. Bam, we're done. Mm-hmm. So... But the thing is, like, it's easier to kind of pick up under the skin and decide if he's your kind of writer because it's not nine hundred pages long like the Crimson Petal and the White is. If I told if you if you like that kind of story, if you like that sort of um, historiographic metafiction of Victorian stories, mm-hmm. I would rather go for Sarah Waters because Sarah Waters has lots of incredibly hot, sexy sex in them. Like that woman can write fucking. <laughs> if you haven't read Tipping the Velvet, it's brilliant. It's got male impersonators and dildos and socialism. And lots of like metaphors of um, oysters, which mean the exact thing that you think they do. Mm. I love that book. I have her other book, actually. I've got Fingersmith on my table because they've just made it into a film called The Handmaiden by Park Chan-wook, who made Stoker. Mm -hmm. And he's moved the setting to it's uh, Japan and Korea in 1910. So I'm really fascinated to see how that story works in a different geographical setting and culture. And I also have our other book, Paying Guests, which is set post-World War One, and is apparently, like, her best yet. So, but I love oh, her style. Oh, yeah, I remember hearing NPR talk about that. Barry Hardiman really liked it. Yeah, she did. She has a book called The Night Watch, which makes me wonder, if you take all, like, times the phrase Night Watch crops up in literature, either as the name of the, the book or even also taken in the times it's like a phrase in the book like this must be number in the hundreds well it's a painting originally isn't it well there's a painting by rembrandt but hasn't it also it's just all the various fantasy and like mm-hmm. sci-fi writers and like it all like it's everybody's favorite combination of words yeah i don't know if her books is about the painting i just see it like in the list of her bibliography and that's fine like i'm not saying it's not a legitimate i'm just like you could have an entire library just of books called the night watch i feel like and they'd be completely different things <laughs> somebody make that goodreads list <laughs> i will say the night watch is a really wonderful sarah waters book mm-hmm. it's um she for her she was best known for a long time as being the one who wrote stories set in the victorian era this one is set during world war ii and it's the story of this group of people their internet interconnecting lives as they're all living in london it's incredibly queer as her work i think only one of her books doesn't have any queer themes in it at all I find her writing style incredibly compelling. She is one of those people who can just write and write and write, and I will read and read and read. Mm-hmm. So, but if you've never read her work before and you want somewhere to start, go with Tipping the Velvet. It is just the perfect encapsulation of everything she's wonderful at. And also, it was made into a really wonderful miniseries, which was hugely controversial when it came out in BBC's first time. <laughs> can I have a moment of, I know you haven't read this book, and why haven't you? Not even at YouTube, but just at the world at large. This includes you, listener. You keep asking permission for things that you don't need our permission for. Just go do the thing. It's my way to segue. 
I, I know. But just stop, stop oppressing me. <laughs> I will oppress you as much as I want. I'm an American. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, original colonialists here. <laughs> the Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. You haven't read it, but it's on your list. I know it is. Why it's haven't you read Kindle. it? It's I know. Well. Kindle. <laughs> it's on everyone's <laughs> Kindle. Every single one of my friends goes, oh, you know, it's on my to read this. Read it. It's so good. I think it's one of those books that everyone... Because when it came out, it was so hugely hyped. That book got the promotional campaign to end all promotional campaigns. It was huge. Because it was basically being sold as Twilight meets um, Neil Gaiman, I think it was. Or Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell was the one Oh, whatever. Do not, do not even insult the book by putting it in Twilight at this time. <laughs> but it was one of those things when it came out, it was totally unavoidable. Because especially if you were in the book blogging or book reviewing world, we're kind of getting more of that now. There's one of the big ways that publishers are really promoting books is by basically giving them huge advances and then saying, hey, you should read this book because we paid like $7 million for it. But I think The Night Circus was one of those ones where it actually paid off. They did seem to make a lot of money out of it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the author's done anything since. Her Wikipedia page does not list any other... I think she's like Susanna Clark in that way, who wrote Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And I was like, you know what? I, you've got your 800-page book. Leave me alone. <laughs> and she's justified, because it's a really good book. Just, I don't know. It had everything for my catnip. Like, it was so, both the style of the writing and then the visual style of the circus in the book and, like, the different... I'm sure there's a technique, and as an English, like, major, I, I am forever shamed for not remembering. But there's the novel... And interspersed as the novel is the second person point of view visiting the circus. Mm -hmm. If you've read the book, one of the things you could do is just pick a like an evening where like I feel like just kind of staying in and you could just read those and like have a visit to the circus. And it's wonderful. I love this book. Why aren't my friends reading it? <laughs> it, it deserves some of your time and attention, world. Give, give it it. <laughs> okay. I will eventually get round to it. You've seen my book pile, right? It's an addiction. Yeah. It's a problem. But I'm dealing with it and I can quit anytime I want to. Hey, I did not go to Ikea yesterday and buy more bookshelves, which is, you know, <laughs> the first time in three months. <laughs> I just had to start a new pile to put the books that I'd finished. It's next to my fold-away chair and my perfume. <laughs> I will. I will say I am interested to read it, just if only because I'm fascinated by books that get that kind of hype and how it pays off. I must be the person that hype is aimed at because I I read the Gargoyle and I actually liked it. No, I haven't read that, but I remember that. I feel like a lot of people read it because it was a big hype thing, though. Like it was a like I'm not saying it was. I I would rank Night Circus above the Gargoyle, but I think the Gargoyle was very interesting literally exercise and there were parts and because the gargoyle is has these also interludes of they're set in entirely different both geographic location and time errors so you can find something in that that will just speak to you you know so i liked it. i like the author's sense of humor there's a huge passage where all it's doing is listing i think items on a like a christmas buffet it's just a like a page long paragraph and in the middle it'd be like just just seeing if you're still paying attention. <laughs> like a little Easter egg for those readers who didn't skim. <laughs> I'm generally fascinated by literary hype and how it pays off and how it doesn't pay off. Because unlike movies in that aspect, we don't tend to get like the receipts. You know, you right. can go to box office mojo and find out how much money a film cost and how much it made. 
it's really rare to find out that with books. Publishers are not privy to doing that. So when it does happen, it's it's pretty revealing. There was a book called Sacred Games, I believe it was called, which was by an Indian author. They paid about a million dollars for it. It was this huge, like, thousand-page-long book, and it was being hyped as the great new literary thing. And I think it sold, like, 50,000 books overall. Mm-hmm. Which, for a million-dollar book, is just not done. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll never recoup that money. There have been a lot of discussion around that over the past year or so, with the sheer amount of books that are getting big deals. I read The Girls by Emma Klein. Mm-hmm. She was a debut author. She's my age. She got, like, two, three million dollars for her debut novel. And all the talk about this book was either, A, it's about the Manson girls, or B, it got a shitload of money. And that was all you heard about this book. And I will say, I, I generally liked the book. But once you know that number, and because you can't escape the number because it's all that anyone talks about when they read or review the book, you end up sort of adding up in your head, is this book really worth that kind of money? Which is so unfair. And I don't see that done a lot for like other genres. Movies it's done more for because you kind of see the money in a way that you don't really go to a book. But it's a really fascinating thing to quantify. The same thing happened with a book called City on Fire by Garth Risk Halberg, I think his name is, which was a thousand pages long and got that similar kind of hype and I believe was considered a, a, a publishing disappointment. But we're also in an industry right now where no one is making enough money to pay those advances back. Amy Schumer got $7 million for her book advance. Mm-hmm. Like Even Amy Schumer will never make that back, but I struggle to think of an author who could make that a bit back. I don't even think J.K. Rowling could make that back in this current market. It's a current market where you only really need to sell about 20,000 copies to make it to the top five of the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. So yeah, you can say you're a New York Times bestseller list if you sell three, 4,000 copies in a certain genre. It's still an achievement, but Publishing success now means a totally different thing from publishing success even five years ago. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing that with the way that a number of publishing houses are kind of merging with one another. Some are folding. A lot of offers are you know, going indie or they're having to publish a couple of books a year just to make the kind of money that they were making beforehand. It's a weird industry like that. And really depressing yeah. to watch, to be honest. Yeah. Speaking of, because uh, you mentioned J.K. Rowling, wonder if she'd make that book. This is maybe slightly off topic, but that's okay. That's us. I never watched the Casual Vacancy miniseries. No, I didn't see it either. I, I actually re- liked the book, and I really meant to check that out. Uh, probably will at some point. Again, if any listeners did see the miniseries, leave us a comment on whether you think it was a good adaptation of the book. Or even yep. just enjoyable on some merits. See, I, I still like J.K. Rowling's writing. Like, I do read her detective series that she writes, The Cormoran Strike Wins, so... That's being adapted for the BBC. That's kind of unsurprising. <laughs> and they've cast a pretty good-looking bloke to play the lead role, which is weird, oh. because every casting suggestion I saw for that role was, like, he's supposed to be a very large, older man. Right, who did they cast? Oh, God, what's his name? Tom Burke. Oh, from uh, The Musketeers! Yes! Yes! Athos. Oh. Athos. Oh. Like, on one hand, I liked him in The Musketeers. By the way, I haven't seen the third season, and it looks like I'm not going to, because fuck you, Athos on the Lady Forever. But I'm not sure that he's not at all what I would imagine as Cormoran Strike. Y'all did not see the eye roll I just gave. <laughs> <laughs> 
Implied eye roll is your middle name. Basically, yeah. <laughs> Shut up. I own my ships. I I, I know. <laughs> I know. Look, you're not as bad as people who are apparently watching the Victoria miniseries, which will be airing in the U.S., I think, in January. And are really mad that Victoria and Melbourne are not getting together. <gasps> oh like, my god, I saw that read headline. A <laughs> read a book. Go, go to Hyde Park. Go across from the Royal Albert Hall. Take a look at that giant, fucking shiny memorial, and ask yourself: Would she have built that for Albert if Melbourne was even remotely in the picture? The answer is no. It's a kind of infamous. You know, b- wearing black for life, mourning him forever, love story. What did you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm almost amused, but I'm I'm mostly sad. Yeah. That. It's like when people watch Lincoln and thought, I wonder how this ends. <laughs> Sorry. Right. Sorry. I, I shouldn't laugh at people. Right, like, but... you're legitimately mad that the miniseries is, is shooting their Victoria Melbourne ship and not doing that thing. Just write your fanfiction for fuck's sake, people. Right. Side note, but Tom Burke, who's playing Carmen Strike, his godfather was Alan Rickman. Aww. Aww. Alright, do we want to do that? Uh, the roundtable? First, we have a couple of tweets that people sent us of books that they were excited about. Claudia, Claudia Risa, on Twitter, said the library at Mount Shar, and she sent a link to a review that hooked her. And she says that the only thing similar is 100,000 Kingdoms by N.K. Jemison. So that's high praise right there. At Princess Star said that Every Heart a Doorway by Shauna McGuire is still the favorite book that she's read all year. And I've heard amazing things about that. And she is also juggling the Harrowing Complex by Sarah Kuhn, which, quote, has been rocking along. And Dana, our precious and beloved founder linked to come as you are by emily nagoski nagoski who also wrote how not to fall which is an amazing book and you should all read it but come as you are is talking about science that will transform your sex life and like how to you know Come as you are. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and she has been on the Smart Bitches podcast a couple of times. And the second time, they were answering questions that people sent in to ask. And she is very knowledgeable and very compassionate and very caring. And just wants everybody to have great sex, which I think is a worthy goal. Yay. <laughs> and is also a great title. Yeah. I hope she got a major pat on the back for that title. I hope so. Do you see the cover? Oh, let's look at the cover. Meanwhile, I just a uh, quick um, reference back to the Every Heart a Doorway by Sean and McGuire. Mark Oshiro of <laughs> Mark Does Stuff has started reading it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is such a great cover. Great. Like, I love any cover where it's like something that is clearly meant to be <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I recently read Tampa by Alyssa Nutting, which is about a a Florida school teacher, a woman whose sexual preferences are for pubescent boys and the cover is uh, what Mason Verger refers to as stitching buttons <laughs> as when you look at it and you just go I get it <laughs> I get it I get it or if you've read one of my favorite books of the year Girls on Fire by Robin Wasserman 
mm-hmm. which is amazing and you should read it. The British cover is uh, a Kirby grip that is bent out of shape and has a hair wrapped around it. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's another one where you're sort of whispering, I get it. I see what you did there. But you should read that book. That book is brilliant. It is <laughs> deeply fucked up codependent female friendships in the early 90s grunge era. Mm-hmm. Like grunge era meets first Bush era, basically. With Bush. It's very good. Okay, so I thought that after we'd had a couple of heavy episodes in a row, that we should try to always end on a on a positive note, so we're not all like, uh, I'm going to go eat a pint of ice cream. I mean, you can do that. I'm not saying you shouldn't eat a pint of ice cream if you don't want to, but we don't want you to feel like you have to. I care for everybody. And Ben and Jerry's is expensive. So I and thought the that, stuff's just not as good. Right. Supermarket brand version is just not as good, guys. <laughs> no, it's not. And sadly, I do not live in Stockholm where I can get saffron and honey ice cream whenever the fuck I want, which is clearly an oppression. I, I just don't know, guys. I just don't know. I took my sister to a gin bar last week, and there was a gin <laughs> you could get, which was served with honey. Mm-hmm. Which she wouldn't try, but she did try the one with cinnamon and chili, and she does not recommend it. But otherwise, gin for all. Except me, I don't like it. Make someone um, else drink gin and then watch. <laughs> and finish vodka, because there was no Russian vodka left. Sorry. How could there be no Russian vodka left? It's because everybody bought it first. Obviously, people knew what they were doing. <laughs> right. So, anyway, I thought maybe we should take a page out of NPR's playbook, which I'm fine with this, and end episodes on something we're looking forward to. Whether it's a thing we're going to do, or a thing we want to read, or a thing we want to see, like, whatever. Just something we're looking forward to. I am definitely looking forward to seeing Loving when it comes out in November, which is a movie about the Virginia v. Loving Supreme Court case that ruled that the ban on interracial marriage was unconstitutional. And the reason that I'm most excited for this is because Ruth Nega is in it, and I just want her to have a great career and have roles that actually respect her as a person and an actress, and S.H.I.E.L.D. did not do that. But it did get her in front of people, so maybe between this and Preacher, she can go on to have the best career. She's really good in Preacher. Yes, um, she is. From what I've seen, I've only watched a couple episodes because it's not really my thing, but... She is just so charming. I would watch her in absolutely anything. She was in the Warcraft movie. She's in the Warcraft movie? Yes. With boyfriend Dominic Cooper. Oh. Yeah. You should treat her like a precious gem. Precious gem. (laughs) Precious gem. And also, I hope she got a fuck ton of money for that, because, whew. I didn't see it. (laughs) (laughs) Neither did I. I did. And? It was great. It was like a long cutscene. (laughs) <laughs> well we heard this from dana as well basically if you really like world of warcraft you'll really like the movie if you've never played world of warcraft you're just gonna think it's awful so mm-hmm. i've never played it so this was like my as i like to say peak nerddom but a lot of the reviews when they reviewed it that would say the adaptation of you know the the highly popular world of War- no it's the adaptation of the first warcraft game world of warcraft is like a generation later <laughs> 
See, because my my what I'm looking forward to is also peak nerd. It's it's Alina's secret giant nerddom is uh, Magic the Gathering, the trading card game. And in a week, we're having pre-release for the new set coming out. And it looks amazing. We now have vehicles in Magic. There's also going to be the Masterpiece series, Kaladesh Invention. So everybody's opening, you know, $100 bills essentially in their packs. And we're the Magic community. Therefore, we're going to complain that our $100 bills are folded wrong. Nobody will get that reference except maybe the two people who play Magic who listen to the show. Please let me know who you are so I know I'm not alone. TLDR, Magic the Gathering, stuff is going to happen in a week, and I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. All right, Should Kaylee? I Sorry, yes. I okay. Well, given what kind of year it's been, I like to find other things to obsess over, but all, I always end up obsessing over awards season for films. Uh, <laughs> and since we're coming into what is officially the season where everyone starts screening the films they want to get nominated for Oscars, I'm really excited to see a lot of those films. I'm excited to see Loving as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really excited to see Arrival, which is Denis Villeneuve's movie. It's based on a short story by Ted Chiang called Story of Your Life, which is a really beautiful, um, cerebral sci-fi story that uh, mixes time travel with linguistics, stars Amy Adams and a bunch of other talented actors and Jeremy Renner. Okay. And it might actually get her an Oscar, which I'm quite excited about because mm-hmm. people went on about Leo being overdue. No, Amy Adams is overdue. Yeah, she's had, what, five nominations? Yeah, six, yeah. I believe. Uh, she's also really getting really good reviews for Nocturnal Animals, which is directed by Tom Ford, who made A Single Man, which is beautiful and made me cry very heavily. I'm really excited for Hidden Figures. Oh, yes. It's um, Taraji P. Henson and Octavia Spencer and Janelle Monet, and it's the story of the African-American women who worked on the original space program oh. and have basically been ignored from history. Catherine Johnson is the main one. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm hoping that will fit into the pleasantly middle-brow inspirational slot. Because I think those movies don't get enough credit for how difficult it is to do them. Mm -hmm. On that note, I'm I'm interested to see Lion, which is Dev Patel and Nicole Kidman. It's based on the true story of Saru Brierley, who was separated from his family when he was a child, ended up being adopted by an Australian couple, and then found his family in India again by Google Earth. The whole thing could end up being like a really saccharine advert for Google. Apparently it's not. Apparently it's much more affecting than that. And I love Dev Patel and I think he should have a proper leading man career. Yes. Because he's great. And I think he gets shafted because racism. So Mm -hmm. I'm interested to see how that does. The director of that is then doing the Mary Magdalene movie, which I would be really interested in if it wasn't Rooney Mara playing Mary Magdalene. Like that's a problem. Yes. Is there anybody Rooney Mara isn't playing... Me. She's not playing me. We were actually white. (laughs) I just feel like if you're making a movie about that era of history and that entire story, uh, and the only actor of Arab descent in your cast is playing Judas Iscariot, that's kind of a problem. You've got a problem. Yes. Yes, it's not hard. Yeah, so that's happening. But that's not until next year, so I'm not too worried about that. But I'm also excited for Moonlight, which has been kind of the... um, the indie darling of the festival circuit right now. It's directed by Barry Jenkins. It is the story of an African-American gay man through three different periods of his life from about 10 to 17 to 27, I believe. It got rapturous reviews. I saw it described as Carol meets Frank Ocean's albums, (laughs) which is just the best description. Yeah. And it's like it's the kind of story we don't get to see a lot of, so I'm very excited for that. I think the big one that's going to be 
kind of the the Oscar film that I'll be talking about is Fences, which is based on the August Wilson play. It's directed by Denzel Washington, who's starring in it alongside Viola Davis. Mm-hmm. She needs some sort of like well done for surviving Suicide Squad. Here is your Oscar kind of moment. Yeah. So, but yeah, this could be shaping up to be an, a genuinely interesting Oscar season. It could. Yeah, after two years of, of Oscars so white and finally seeing some sort of progressive move forward, we might actually get somewhere. But this is obviously a very contentious season as well due to a certain movie called Birth of a Nation. Yep. Which we're not talking about because we're happy. We're not right? talking about because we're talking about happy things. But yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see. And also La La Land, I almost forgot. Yes. Because we don't get a lot of original musicals where, you know, these days. They tend to be adaptations. And the people who love this movie adore it, and we don't get movies like that, and I love those movies. So, it's nice when you're pandered to in an exceptionally specific way. Yes. The poster for La La Land is such a callback to, like, Singing in the Rain and that era mm-hmm. of... I believe it is deliberately evoking... Oh, I- I'm sure it wasn't, like, an accident, I'm just, you know. Yeah. And how glad are we we got that movie with that cast? It was originally supposed to be Emma Watson and Miles Teller. <laughs> oh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. But I'm also, just to end it, in terms of the, the Oscar race, I'm also excited for the animation season, because there's a little movie coming out soon called Moana. Yay! Did everybody see the trailer? I, I actually haven't it. watched it yet. I've been saving it. Oh, you should watch it. I will, I will. I I know it's good. Of course it's good. I'm saving it for a moment when I truly, truly need it. Right. You, it is when it pays off, it will pay off, I swear. A group of my friends are already in the middle of a betting circuit as to what film is going to win Best Animated Feature this year. A lot of them think it's going to be Zootopia. Some of them think it'll be Kubo on Two Strings. I think it's going to be Moana because all Disney have to do is hand out Hamilton tickets. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's super easy. It's super easy. Or get people to send, like, to get The Rock to send vines to them, wishing them a good day. I think that would also work. That'd also do it. Or like, The Rock the- and Lynn rapping together. Yeah, get them to sing Gaston together again. <laughs> See, I think Kubo and the Two Strings, like, judging by the buzz it's getting, it certainly seems deserving. On the other hand, I think it's got the least chance because I am keep on remembering that article from a couple of years ago where it's like, Academy members answer our questions anonymously and it's very much, you know, well, which animated movie deserved it? I don't know, it's damn it's fucking cartoons my kids saw that one so i guess i'll vote for it you know yeah. and that's not an environment in which a movie like kubo and the two strings is gonna that's true get the, the recognition the thing about deserves. that is once again the academy is primarily old stuffy white dudes who tend to look at stuff that isn't you know actor based you know suffering from my craft kind of material they can tend to look down on it but they also tend to like movies that make money and kubo and the two strings did not make money no which I feel is really unfair. I haven't seen it, but it looks so beautiful. And I really love Laika's other films, particularly Caroline and Paranorman. Mm-hmm. Didn't see the box trolls. And it, I would just, I would like a space for those kind of films because it shouldn't just all be CG animation from Disney, which is fine because I like those films. But, you know, variety is a space of life, guys. Yeah. On a- we have to have something that Disney don't own. <laughs> On a completely shallow note, I am looking forward to the Magnificent Seven remake with Denzel and Chris Pratt. Uh, Pratt is at the bottom of my Chris list. Yeah, but he's still on the Chris list. (laughs) 
and it looks like the kind of role that that is actually made for him. And it just looks like, you know, silly Western fun that it's not going to be great, but it looks like it's going to be fun. And I'm up for some fun. I mean, it's not Jurassic World, so... No, it's not Jurassic World. This this cast is a bit of a collection of, of men you like. You know, Matt Bomer, yeah. Ethan Hawke, Vincent D'Onofrio. No, we don't like Matt Bomer anymore, though. No, we're off Matt Bomer. Byung-Hun Lee, so, you know... Yeah. But this looks like it could be a really interesting season, especially for stories by black filmmakers and different kind of varieties of stories we don't usually get. There's also the stuff from, you know... The classics, like Ang Lee and Scorsese, have new films coming out this year. Yeah. The Scorsese one could be utterly insufferable. I'm waiting to see. Which one's the Scorsese one? Uh, Silence. Liam okay. Neeson. It's about the uh, Portuguese missionaries who go to Japan, I believe. Oh, And it's okay. about three and a half hours long. Of course it is. Oh, and no, Dunkirk it's... is coming out, too. Mark Rylance and Harry Styles, together at last. <laughs> One of my favorite filmmakers, Lynn Ramsey, is making a film and it comes out next year. I'm really excited for that. Mm-hmm. Because she's Scottish and she's the director and she's wonderful. No, silence. Two Portuguese Jesuit Catholic priests face violent persecution when they travel to Japan to seek out their mentor and spread the teachings of Christianity. Which could be brilliant or utterly insufferable. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. I read this and I just feel like this could be really racist. I'm sorry, it just could be really Oh, it definitely could. Oh, yeah. Could. oh yeah. So, I'm, I'm very wary of it. I think it's like three hours long. Like, I like Scorsese, but when he mentioned that he struggled to cut down the Wolf of Wall Street from four hours to three, I was like, really? Really? I could have cut that down to 90 minutes. Like, I, I could take some notes and give them to you if you like. Yeah. Like, I could tell you where it's come from. I know exactly where it was padded, and I only saw that movie once. And I'm not just talking about Margot Ro- Robbie's butt, but I'm also talking about Margot Robbie's butt. Three hours, 15 minutes. That's how long God. it is. Oh, Lord. Is it going to be an intermission? Because I'm going to need to pee. No, I-, I saw The Hateful Eight without the intermission, and holy shit, that film needed the intermission. Mm. I'm still mad Something at how much I did that film. <laughs> I mean, I need a lot of things, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing about that film that I really liked is my dad is a huge Tarantino fan, and I took him to see it for his birthday. Because mm-hmm. I'm a really good daughter. And right. I bought a nachos and a hot dog, and I took him out for dinner and all that. And it was really clear while watching the film that my dad wasn't necessarily enjoying it. <laughs> Uh, and afterwards, he was like, "No, it was, it was, it was fine. You know, it was okay." And then later, we were sort of eating our dinner, and he went, "That film was really long, wasn't it?" I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> and then, like a couple of weeks later, he says, "You know, they said the N word a lot in the Hateful Eight, didn't they?" I was like, "Yeah, I think they yeah. said it too <laughs> much, just, didn't they?" Yeah. And then, he like, just needed some time to process. <laughs> and then a few, like a few weeks after that, it was just like, "That film was kind of racist, wasn't it?" Yeah. <laughs> It's like, they were really nasty to that woman in that movie, weren't they? And I was like, yeah. So he's kind of finally come round to admitting that he'll, I don't think he'll ever fully confess out loud that he didn't like it. But this is just his way of processing it. <laughs> so we're just watching Glorious Bastards and that makes us happy. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I think that we have talked about enough books to keep people happy for a while. 
or at least, you know, curled up as the, it's boot season, it's cozy sweater season. So curl up and read a book. He gave you some options. We will be back next month to talk about something else for a while. A long while, because that's us. That's us. That's what we do. Everybody have a good night. Bye. 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 You have been listening to Anglophies, a Made of Fail production. No, that would make this podcast a reasonable length. (laughs) Right, and we don't do that. (laughs) Sorry, Germany. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have to let that one go someday. (laughs) Someday, but not today.